and welcome to the Weekly Scroll Podcast. My name is Ryan. And I saw Buddha on the road and I killed him. And with us today, we have a special guest that is James Pianca of Empty Mountain, Nothing Can Die. How are you doing today, James? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks yeah. for coming on. Absolutely. Yeah, so this is, as we always do, we talk for like 20 minutes before the show starts. Um, and we've had great conversation. I'm happy to repeat here. Um, but for those that weren't in that and might not know James Pianca or Empty Mountain, Nothing Can Die, uh, who, who, who the heck are you, James? Hey, thank you. Um, yeah, so um, I'm a game developer. I've been in the video game industry for about 10 years now. I started in tabletop. Uh, first gig in the field was writing card names and flavor text for Magic the Gathering. Um, you know, I got into the field to tell stories, right, in, in this exciting interactive context. And I went to my first game developers conference, learned very quickly that um, narrative design, this really wonderful new subfield, this combination of game design and game writing was really where I wanted to be if I wanted to tell stories in a way that was particularly effective in this medium using its new tool set. But then you go out into the industry and um, narrative design chairs tend to really just secretly be screenwriting roles with more Funko Pops on your desk. And so um, I learned also somewhat quickly that if I wanted to really, you know, cash the check that uh, the narrative design discipline was offering that I had to just go be a real game designer. Um, so I'm about five or six years into that path now, and I'm back now in tabletop because um, it just hasn't really been that artful in in video games, you know, and something I, I say on the blog post, like the, the raison d'etre hello, hello world post on the site was like, you know, it's been like 10 years and I haven't really made a ton of what's in my heart. Um, cause that's not, that's not really the job. Like that's not, that's not the nature of employment. You know, you, you go out and you make other people's, uh, passion projects and they pay you. Uh, and that's okay. It's that's, you know, we've student loans and you can like go be an adult, but, um, at a certain point, I'm just kind of dying inside a little bit. I haven't really, I really need to go out and, and make the stuff that I would be happy to see on my tombstone, for instance. Hell yeah. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. Um, and you have a project out right now on ZineQuest at Shrines, but but before we get to Shrines, you ha you've you already, or Empty Mountain Nothing, first of all, okay, let's start with Empty Mountain Nothing Can Die. <laughs> yeah. T tell us about Empty Mountain Nothing Can Die. Sure. Well, it seems like everybody in this scene needs to make their own little press, right? Uh, so um, it, Empty Mountain Nothing Can Die, uh, or Empty Mountain for shorthand, you know, is a... Um, a very small indie micro press. Right now, it's just me and the people who agreed to collaborate with me. Um, I hope to make it expand and, and have it grow. Um, I'm still sort of uh, kind of navigating the various schools of thought and philosophies within the tabletop scene. Um, and uh, I'm finding myself right now very, very likely in a sort of NSR type angle, you know, new school renaissance. Um, I really appreciate a lot of what the OSR is doing in terms of its emphasis on really minimalist rule sets that enable play as this like really sacred activity that human beings do at tables. Um, but then also just like getting out of the way, you know, um, I found like, I, you know, we've all been playing D and D forever <clears throat> and you know, at a certain point, you realize that the system, as Matt Colville said in a, a recent video, it doesn't really like do anything. Like it, it gets you to the table, it gets you rolling dice, gets you having conversations. But systemically, it's not actually encouraging uh, or facilitating any particular themes or uh, types of experiences. And um, then Morkborg came out. You know, and I, I remember, I remember reading Morkborg and being absolutely fucking floored at just like some of the audacity uh uh and and what it it kind of revealed to me it was like lifting a rock um or i was like oh I've, I've been playing tabletop games all my life i've been deviating from fifth edition in my own games forever because it's bad and um i mean it's good right you know it's good but like there are parts no, of it that, no no no, no it's, it's bad, bad. You're, you're, good. Okay, you're good okay you're okay good. thank you yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i don't want to alienate any listeners you know we've all played a lot no, of D, but i, no, I do listen, think if anyone time... that actually listens to this show trust me <laughs> they have been alienated long ago <laughs> right, right. We we all owe it a lot. Let's say you know, but but turns out there's been like 40 years of people identifying its problems and stepping beyond them in their own designs. Um, and so Morkborg really just revealed to me the existence of this like churning sea of interesting design uh, ideas. And I was like, oh shit, okay, cool. So like this, that's that's where that's where this needs to happen. That's where this needs to be done. So Empty Mountain is a uh, you know, it's a uh, it's probably gonna have a kind of an art house. Art house vibe, you know. We um, love that. 
Uh, well, thank you. Yeah, I was listening. I listened to your your episode with uh, Games Omnivorous, and I feel a lot of aesthetic and sort of philosophical kinship with them. I think they're doing really awesome work. Um, I really like um, designers like Everest Pipkin. I think they're doing really also really interesting theoretical work. And and so, uh, you know, I, I can't promise where this what the press will put out, <clears throat> what the nature of the work will be over time. I can only say that right now, uh, I'm interested in uh, releasing really minimalist, minimalist narrative-driven systems that spotlight what the human brain does naturally. You know, I think I think tabletop role-playing games, as opposed to something like video games, are are these these stages, these venues for human creativity, and every, everything like systems and and art and lore. These are all just set dressing to help us perform in the moment, and so I'm interested in a lot of reductive design and kind of paring away the chaff that that you know like asking a, a, a gm to pour through pages and pages of lore so that they can internalize it and then spontaneously and and like sincerely uh kind of deploy that the all that nuance in the moment i think that's a lot to ask and it, it's also not really the right thing to ask like it like people run games you know, for many reasons, but the, the one that I find most interesting, the one that is for me is to be creative and to, and to, to actually make those creative decisions myself and to, and to, to render this world, um, for players. And I think that, uh, a lot of the design writing in spaces like the OSR and the NSR is really attractive because it doesn't, um, uh, as Jared Sinclair, uh, of, of Spearwitch says in one of his essays, uh, it does not, uh, chew your food for you. My God, could we have a 10-hour conversation about everything that you just said? Yeah. Uh, I had to put a really big pin in that one. Yeah, because that's, that's yeah, just a monologue that doesn't end. No, yeah, no, trust me. We've had many of those same uh, brief things here. Uh, so I don't write things down, and I wrote down like half a uh, a, um, a thing already about this. To, to start, I guess, uh, as soon as you started talking about Empty Mountain, uh, my yes. mind immediately went to Games Omnivorous, and, I, and then you immediately said... Um, it does feel like your uh, goals for it really align with a lot of stuff that like um, that Geo is doing. Also, Geo like Games and Murph, fantastic people, fantastic stuff. If you don't know them, please go check them out. Um, but it, it's interesting that you specifically called out Markboard because I feel like that kind of you know lifting the rock and seeing something else is something that a lot of people in this space had a, a similar kind of. It's, uh, it's um, the allegory of the cave. Yeah. Yeah. People people really realize that there's more that you can do uh, with games, with not only with layout, with design, with rule sets, with everything for it. Um, and it was just such a great game in the way that they um, hit all of those things and opened up all of those doors for people. It's really interesting. Um, and, and gosh, uh, I'm just going to cross one or two of these off so that we actually get to the things that we need to talk about. Um, but um, also just... 5e versus where you're talking about now it's i i i only say this because i recently talked to somebody about this as well just the concept of a, a kind of split in generally the way that people like to play games um right in that i feel like there's obviously millions of people that play 5e they're very happy with the way it works in yeah, that yeah. they're very happy to be um to be kind of like brought through a story that someone else is right. telling them and yeah, then yeah. and people are and that's fine and I'm getting much more okay not complaining about that a lot. If that is the joy that people find, that's fine. Yeah. But I think we're all here on the show aligned with we don't like that. I, I like feeling exactly what you're talking about and exactly what you want to do with games. And that is um, actually creating something and feeling like I'm doing something and that I'm in charge of the actions and consequences that, that, right. I, that yeah. are in front of me, you know? Yeah, I think the role of the designer is is different and interesting in this space. Um, it's one of the thing, one of the reactions that you might have when you're discovering the space is you're like looking through an RPG book and you're like, "Is this it?" You know, it feels underwhelming. You're like, "Well, this is not enough here. There aren't any rules or mechanics or or weird mathematical trickery." And that's that's the point. And I think that's the maturity of the designer is to realize that like, "Oh, I don't actually have to." deploy all this effort yeah like you know in a way that um is actually ultimately just kind of self-serving you know it's just like i'm trying to impress upon you my acumen as a designer that's not interesting that's not what people th that actually takes something from from the players um and so it's it's a very counterintuitive 
design journey uh, that I think we go on when we when we embrace these principles. I also think it's a matter of who you're making it for as well. Um, When you pull out a lot of the like not subtext, but a lot of the handholding like that becomes something for a, a person who is more familiar with like this space and like creating your own narrative and filling their own gaps, which I don't think there's anything bad about. I think that's good. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you have to, that's the question you kind of have to ask. Yeah, for sure. And like to all the people playing D and D and having a great time, I, I never want to yuck anybody's yum. I think that's really, really important. James, they're I, not I listening. Pop- sure. Okay. Show. Right. Right. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. But if they were, I, I would hypothesize that their yummy is a little yuckier than they are being honest with themselves about. And mm. that it could be yummier still. Yeah. I, you know, to that same exact point, if, if you are aware that that is what you like and you are aware that something else is out there and you still like it, more power to you. It's more Absolutely. of the, the concept that like 5e really tries to insulate its players in right. the context of like, oh, you want to play a space game? Just do 5e in space versus like yeah. going and finding something like death in space. Um, right. Uh, you know, a lot of it comes down to just the amount of scaffolding people need to play. Yeah. Um, play their game and 5e is an extremely scaffolded system where like every aspect of it is like it, it's handed to you and you need all of these like training wheels and like definitive things to to play it whereas a lot of the osr nsr spaces like pull a lot of that scaffolding away and starting with something like 5e a game that has a lot more of that scaffolding and then moving to the OSR space is great right because you've learned what you need to learn and you don't need it anymore so sometimes it's hard for people to get directly into OSR and NSR because they don't have that initial scaffolding but for us that as you begin your TTRPG journey once you need that scaffolding to fall away like that's the space that we're talking about now and absolutely um, yeah yeah. And, and like I don't even necessarily have anything against scaffolding we might release mm. some games that are more heavily scaffolded. I just hope they scaffold you in the right direction. Uh, and my conjecture is that fifth edition, as it as Dungeons and Dragons as a franchise developed and became more important to Hasbro, uh, I don't really hold anything against the uh, the designers uh, of the later editions because I think they had really difficult goals. Um, uh, just like difficult product goals that their designs had to serve. Uh, D&D began as a, you know, as a dungeon crawler, uh, heavily focused on a very specific style of play, a specific tone, and the rules are there to f- support and facilitate those interactions. Um, but that's just not what it is anymore. It became just kind of a loose catch-all narrative game um, where people are very invested in their characters' backstories and it would be inappropriate for them to die and blah, blah, yeah. blah. Uh, the the so OC you, generator, yeah. Yeah, so if you want that, if you want that kind of game, I think there are better, better scaffolds. There are better systems to facilitate that kind of narrative exchange. If you want a dungeon crawler, there are still better systems uh, to go play. <laughs> so I just don't know what 5e is for anymore, you know? And I yeah, think five- it's, it's, yeah, so it, it's okay if like we can make things that are for something specifically i think we have to i think if you make something for everyone you make something for no one categorically and so if as long as you know who it's for right then you can make something for them and it can be scaffolded as long as that's what's appropriate for the type of experience you're trying to create yeah well you know i mean 5e is is like everything it's a fandom and it has gone from a game to a lifestyle brand and uh, right. people don't know how to separate their parasocial lifestyle brands from the their actual identity as a human being so anyway <laughs> um empty mountain has already put out a game right shrines will be the the second game that is actually underneath the press the first one being sanctum correct well try almost correct shrines is not technically a game Shrines is a so, system neutral yeah. source book for many games, any game that is engaging with the sacred as a theme. This makes it simultaneously more flexible and less appealing to everyone because it doesn't like doesn't have a rule set inside of it. It actually asks you, and this is a, a sort of a lack of clarity on my part that I, I'm uh, a lot of my messaging is going to correct now is that like it, it's it's saying very specifically to game masters, it's saying embed these in your world expressing their mechanics in your system period whatever that system may be you know because i trust you as a game master an intelligent human being making uh, you know intentional purposeful decisions about rules narrative and and, and tone uh you're gonna do what you're gonna do that anyway 
right? So you're just, you're like, I think any experienced reader in this medium is ultimately just like, if they're in a bookstore and they're like flipping through a book, like, do I want to buy this or not? I want, for me, let's, I'll speak for myself here anecdotally. I'm looking for actionable ideas. And if they were bolded, that would be nice. So they could jump off the page and I could see exactly what the kernel of novelty is in a given design that is useful to me as an artist, as a, as a creator and a world builder who is going to take it and repurpose it to my own personal needs anyway, right? So the whole philosophy behind shrines, uh, and we'll get to Sanctum in a second. I'm really sorry. This is off topic. But um, oh, the no. philosophy behind shrines here um, that I, I could have and will now do a better job of, of elucidating is that um, I don't want to chew your food for you. I want to give you exactly what you need, no more and no less, no, no superfluous crunch, no superfluous fluff, just the actionable idea, the kernel of novelty with a beautiful illustration, you know, to, to back it up and to sell you atmosphere and tone and really bring you in and give you all of the sort of like, kind of like emotional meta information that you would need to make use of that novelty yourself. Yeah, you put a lot of trust in human beings who are, uh, on the whole, <laughs> fucking stupid. So uh, yeah, I think it's a mistake, maybe. <laughs> no, it's it's fantastic. I mean, I I love the idea of the project. Like I said, well, let's let's wind it back for just a second because once right, we start right. trying, we're gonna go for a while. Yeah, but let's talk about Sanctum. Sanctum already exists, and for those who uh, are want to get into the Empty Mountain early, because I feel like if if your vision happened we're gonna we're we're looking at something that is striving for you know the next games i'm never kind of like art house press idea which i'm super excited for um it's very but kind of what, you thank you but what is what is sanctum since this was the first thing that kind of represents you that you decided to put out yeah so sanctum is pretty directly inspired by uh the ground itself by everest pipkin um which is a collaborative storytelling world building game where everybody sort of uh, in a, collectively shares authorship over a setting over a longer a long period of time um it's got a couple components you know you use like a deck of playing cards to answer prompts which you look up in the book and so what sanctum is doing is is making a couple couple changes on that um it's first of all getting a little more specific it's saying this is about dungeons Dungeons as a theme. We all understand what a dungeon is. Um, uh, I'm going to try to verbatim quote myself in the instructions. It says like a dungeon can be any enclosed dangerous space into which outsiders might venture venture for personal gain. Um, that's my working definition of a dungeon. I, they could be they could be open air theoretically, but I think they would need some enclosure. Otherwise, we're just talking about a sandbox. You know, I think we get we, our words have to mean something. You know, so um, but they could be a tower. You know, it could be a cave. It could be a tomb. Doesn't matter. Um, and it is basically just a template for conversation. It's really just a series of prompts and some barely there rotation rules that say, okay, here are the here are some curated, heavily analyzed pillars as prompts of what a dungeon is and what makes it interesting inside of it. So you move through three acts over the course of the game, as if you were doing you know narrative arcs in a story. They don't really map onto the the Aristotelian curve correctly, but like uh, there's three arcs. So the first one is the dungeon itself, where the player def the players define the features, the aspects of that dungeon that give it its identity. And um, so the, the those prompts here for clarity are the site, the site itself, the place, uh, the prize, the thing inside it that's worth risking your life to retrieve, and the guardian. Because there's a boss battle, right? Um, uh, Gotta be in, in dungeons. Yeah, just thematic, thematically, conventionally, we all we all want a boss battle here. So we identify these three things, and then there's sort of an expansion. Um, it's not DLC, but like we literally like a, a moment afforded to the players um, after the original definitions of expanding each other's ideas. You may not talk about something that you you may not expand upon an idea that you yourself offered, and you may and you ideally want to prioritize. Uh, details that nobody has expanded upon yet. And so this is all really deliberate. I don't want there to be any sense of like personal ownership and the implied competition that would happen in the conversation. It's not like so one person's like, I define the prize and therefore I'm like wedded to it and its fate matters more to me than it might to my other players. No, you define the prize and somebody else makes fun of it or embellishes it. You know, you know? so it's like the yes and improv attitude is really important here where we allow players to kind of go through it. Um, second act is we define the party, the intruders. Who's going to go get this? Who are they? What's interesting about them? And how do they prepare, 
right? So we get we start to set the scene. And the last step, how do we prepare, implies the third act, which is the actual adventure itself. And this is there's a a bit of a um a change in kind here where all of a sudden now we're talking about a narrative before we were doing world building. It was expository. We were like, okay, here's like the scenery, right? It's all kind of static and frozen in time. And we're defining that moment, but now time is going to progress linearly. So over the course of act three, they, we actually go through the dungeon. And so there's uh, the approach, the complication and the resolution. And um, I'll stop talking, I think, but I do want to talk no. about, I think the, no. the complicated no, keep going. No, you sure? Okay. Yeah, yeah totally. Okay, well, the complication part, I think, is the most interesting here because it's the most editorial moment in the entire design. Uh, for the most part, Sanctum is saying, here's what dungeons are structurally, and here is like the shape of the sandbox. I want you to be able to uh, very deliberately replay this over and over and over again with different people, with different ideas, and for the dungeons to be um, uh, very different. I want it to be a generative system. It's a, it is a generative replayable system for creating content. And you might then come up with a cool dungeon with your friends and then run a, like flesh it out and actually go run, you know, a Morkborg or D and D or something in, in it, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, like a scene generator. Um, but something different happens in act three, specifically in step two, the complication which is where as a design, it says sort of ideologically, it says something's going to go wrong. Structurally, you must define a setback because setbacks are a really important part of that Aristotelian curve, uh, which is not the only way to tell a story, but it is the main one that we do in the West. And uh, there is a part such as the entire movie, The Empire Strikes Back, you know, when shit goes wrong, you know, we set up, we, we, we meet our characters, we learn their goals, uh, we sent them off on their path, we have the inciting incident, everything gets exciting. There's a big setback that follows to earn the, the climax and the ultimate cathartic victory. And so um, I contend that this is essential to a good story in that format. And so if we are doing that, if we are telling a story um, structurally, we should really make space for uh, and actually formalize a setback. Uh, this is also important for players to be like, oh, to, to remind them again that we're not wedded to these characters. It's it's a totally interesting story for the dungeon run to fail. You know, if you have a, a TPK and everybody's dead uh, and the resolution of the run is that as one of this is one of the examples in the book that the guardian mounts all of the intruders heads on spikes outside of the dungeon. That's badass. Good job. Cool story. You know, uh, we don't have to win. The objective is different for gameplay. We're not it's not actually an, an RPG. You're not playing a role. No, no player is in the driver's seat of a of a hero and playing out a heroic power fantasy. The objective is to tell a good story, and sometimes those end in failure. Yeah, I really. So when I first got this, one the very first thing, and I think I said to Hunter too, it reminds me a little bit. Have you ever played Archipelago? That's uh, a board game, right? Uh, no, it's like a, it's a, it's a, it's a generative kind of storytelling like this, but it reminded me of like the same kind of vibes as like Microscope or Archipelago. And I absolutely love those games where you exactly, like you said, like kind of write this story, but I really love the way that it was applied into like the three acts and directly mm. specifically to like dungeon design storytelling. Right. right um, yeah. And it's, it's, it's really cool. And I love the idea that you have where you could get to like step two and be like, all right, let's play now. Like, let's yeah. play this world. So it, it's nice yeah. that not only is it a system where you can sit around and, and play with your friends, but you can also use it to generate other things, which is nice. And like a little a six, you're going to get like a lot more than you think out of like what, like the 20 ish pages or less. So it, it, it yeah. it's a neat thing. And it, it's, Thank it's you. really interesting for the first kind of, um, thing that you're putting out as your press to be this like okay clearly we're going to be leaning into narrative we're going to be leading into um this specific type of design away from some type of heavy mechanical thing you know? right yeah to, no. be, to be clear we might put out a heavy mechanical thing you know yeah. some of the like um <clears throat> i am a systems designer in my day job so i like mechanical things uh mm -hmm. i am just removing them mechanically like as a mechanic i'm like pairing those back for these kinds of designs with the press might do other stuff in the future but right now i'm i'm, I'm very interested in this kind of stuff but i do want to i do want to drill a little deeper on your uh uh your noting of its size so a6 as a format as like a as a as a 
you know, a size of a book is very purposeful and interesting. Um, one of the design goals for this game, and I think this is absolutely, this will always be hundred percent. Everything Empty Mountain does will always do this. I think this is really important. Playability or accessibility, I think is just absolutely essential. If you ask, like to reference D&D again, if you ask the dungeon master to buy all the books and do a preposterous amount of reading and prep, the playability of your game is very, very low. Very fucking low, you know? And so a six means it fits in your pants. Yeah, but say it fits in your back pocket. Yeah, you it's a back it pocket. You. Yeah. Exactly. You can bust that shit out on and, and this is something that like Exalted Funeral took this line of copy and put it at the top of the store page in like big orange font because they agree that this is the selling point. It was designed for bonfire circles, car rides, and second bottles of wine. I want to ambush my friends <laughs> with this game <laughs> when we're all a little drunk and feeling loose and creative. Um, and I want it to be such a simple system. It's very important that the, that the systems be, be so simple and accessible that the facilitator character player, which is an optional role. You don't need that. Um, it can have just read the book one time and literally be like, okay, we're sitting in a circle, your player, one, two, three, uh, what does the site go? You know? And, we, and now we're playing like just off, off the bat. That's, um, very, very important because we're all adults. We all live in, uh, the age of the inshittified internet. So our brains are broken. Um, so and true. it's really hard to like actually get together in person. And there's just anything we can do as designers to remove obstacles to people actually playing the game is, you know, that's mission critical. I mean, absolutely. In it's, it's interesting when you think about that and the number of games that I've chosen not to get. I don't understand people that, and again, to each their own. We, I love quality, like, you know, uh, qualifiers, I think are really important in this space because so many people don't use them and act as if they're an authority in a space when it's really just a personal opinion. So in my personal opinion, right. um, when I see a book that, like, touts the fact that it's 500 pages, I'm like, I don't, I personally That's don't bad. see that as a good thing. <laughs> I'm never going to fucking read it. Never yeah. going to fucking read it. Why do you think we haven't reviewed DCC yet on the show? I know it's all spells and laws. Don't get mad at me. Um, but um, it's uh, I, I that's why, you know, we're both fucking piece of shit, like <laughs> zero attention span, high ADHD. Like if it's more than a couple hundred pages, like I'm I'm, I'm already checked out. I'm sorry. Like I, yeah. I will try, but I just can't. So I, I love the small and I really like the um, the thought process into that you've clearly 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 um put into such a small format and small game like it's not it's 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 dense for its brevity you know what i mean and i, well, I really enjoy that you. about design um and uh so does that carry over into shrines like these principles that you have in sanctum um when you're looking at shrines which as you said it's not a game it's it's a it's a system neutral kind of supplement it's a resource um yeah, yeah it's, a resource. it's like a toolkit yeah Right. Um, uh, what are there similar kind of themes and, and themes that you might carry forward with MT Mountain that you brought forward into shrines and also like tell us a bit more about shrines? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'll answer the, the question concretely first before we talk about shrines and abstractly and in general. Um, so the meat of shrines are these 12 spreads, right? that are each of them really lavishly illustrated by Connor Fawcett, who's just a phenomenal illustrator is working with us on this project. Uh, they've they've com contributed to stuff like Wander Home and Lancer and World Ending Game by Everest Pipkin. And so just really, really fantastic work. Um, each of those illustrations provides visual, atmospheric, tonal context for a little narrative and mechanical vignette, just a bit of microfiction and a... Um, uh, excuse me, a system neutral gameplay hook, a, a, a little bit of, a little bit of, uh, mechanic game, mechanical game design that we just trust you to be able to lift out and apply to whatever system you're doing. And so, um, there's a deliberate brevity in all of those things, um, in, in that approach. And, uh, I will likely it's possible right now, you know, I don't want to like, this would be the first time I talk about it publicly, but I, I'm, I might actually just double the amount of microfiction that the book contains without doubling the illustrations. Um, it, it would just, it would break the budget to, to double the illustrations. But um, I do want people to really feel like they're getting their value for a source book. You know, the, the, the fact that it's reso printed on such, you know, fancy stock and it's the, the process of that printing is more expensive in general it means the, the price point can't really change, but I do want people to feel like they're getting their money's worth. So writing is, you know, free for me. Like it's, I can, I can do that easily. It takes time, obviously, and sweat equity, but it's like, um, 
uh, I don't have to hire somebody else to make that contribution to add that extra volume of content. So, um, you know, a bit of an amb- bit of ambiguity there, but that's the thing. That's the thought process, right? The philosophy here is that uh, I offer you more by not over by offering you less, right? Like it's it's a, a very deliberate piece of actionable, you know, idea idea work per scene per vignette. Yeah, supported I, so of course I, with. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Continue, please. Well, supported of course by with couple pages of procedural tools. So multi-column modular tables um, that are deliberately generative, right? I, I, for me, my, like, I like tables, but if they only have one column, they're just a list of writing. There's they're just a list of like of very specific pieces of prompts. Systemically, I find them more interesting if they are combinatorial uh, in such as like like Vaults of Varn, for instance, which is an absolutely masterful book. The 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 breadth and and depth of, of those tables is absurd. Um, and I think that you know having combinatorial prompts like that allows GMs to do the same kind of work that they would do in Sanctum. Players might do in Sanctum. Um, and so, uh, there's a bit of that in the back, but the, the first bit, those, those vignettes, that microfiction, that's more authorial. Um, you could obviously make whatever changes to them you want, but each one of them is a bit more of a, a, um, a more wholly realized narrative conceit. Yeah. I, I, I love the, the, you know, the best thing that I find with this kind of like generative procedural kind of supplemental context is, the adventure seeds and then the ability to use those to expand and um, having that and making people be aware, you know, you're really, again, it comes back to trust where you're, you're really looking for a market of people that don't want something that's just necessarily like, here's this cool thing that people wrote beginning to end with no, nothing outside of it. It is in itself the thing and you just drop it in versus the people that are like, this is a cool idea. I can think of 10 different ways where I can run this like yeah, yeah. in my own thing or adapt it. So, for example, I'm looking at the Oracle of Malice, which obviously there's a reason you put it at the top. It's fucking it's, cool. And the art is fantastic. Yeah, there's a reason it's on cool. a T-shirt, which we'll get to. Yeah. But um, I love this spread here, and it's for those watching the slideshow, they'll see it above us. But like, just the idea behind like this idol buried deep hosts a hateful oracle. Venerators may name an enemy, roll a d6 to determine what the oracle reveals about the enemy, um, and this information must be new. And then there's six options, one of which is like something they fear, something they love, something they hate. Like it's fantastic for the ways that not only are there six options for that very small, tiny little mechanical bit. Um, but a million paths that can be taken off of each one. And even for just those small little pieces outside of the generative tables and, and extra microfiction, like you, there's a thousand campaigns that can be run off this one little square page. And, and I yeah. love that. Uh, you're singing my song. I feel so seen right now. Thank you very much for, for <laughs> you know, unpacking uh, what I hope the val- people see as the value in this approach, right? Like, I don't want to just flesh out, answer all the questions for you, chew your food for you, but I do want to get you chewing. Um, and so that's that's really great to hear. If you're listening to this right now and you feel like <clears throat> your values are being described, please come check out the Kickstarter. You know, I, we, uh, we're we funded now, but we could have a stronger launch. I, I would have liked to have a, a slightly stronger launch because it's, it's the press's debut product, zero established audience so far. This is the first podcast I've been on. So thank you guys again. Oh, um, wow. And, yeah. Thanks for making us your first. Uh, <laughs> hey, I mean, you guys are the first to say yes. So it's like, this is, <laughs> this is, the, this is the beginning. I'm, this is the beginning of me trying to find that audience find that community who shares these values so if you're listening if you feel like we're describing you please show up follow us on instagram show up on discord say hello um i want to make games for you or i want to make or i want to make resources that make the games you're already playing better easier more interesting um that's what i'm here to do very cool james i have a question what what do you play like what is your (laughs) go-to game that you and your table play um well um, kind of between playgroups right now. Um, I've recently moved, so my playgroup uh, ah. in in Los Angeles, not super recently, but my big my big playgroup was in LA. Um, and the last thing we did was a huge five E campaign. Um, mm. It was pretty badass. We had a good time, but it was barely five E. You know, yeah. like, I remember there were oh, sessions where like you roll yeah. a di- you roll the die once, once or twice. Um, yeah. um, we're playing a lot of board games right now. Um, I've you know I work in video games, and it is uh, professionally mandatory that my diet 
be diverse. So I'm actually, I'm playing much more video games than I am tabletop games right now, which is part of why I'm doing this. Um, <clears throat> because I'm tired of, I'm tired of a lot of what video games ask me to do. I think they're kind of disrespectful of our time in general, especially like if you're making a live service or something, um, there's this idea that you want people to be logged in as often as possible, as frequently as possible. Uh, and you want to really want to create FOMO when they're, uh, when they're not logged in. And I, FOMO is like, for me, like my nemesis. I, I want, I hate if, if a design implies that I will, that the player will feel FOMO, I, I'm probably going to put a sniper bullet between its eyes. Like right away. I respect um, that. And I appreciate yeah. it. So. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so yeah, thank you. Um, what are we playing right now? Um, what do you want to play like tabletop wise? What's it? What, like if you were like going to sit at a table and the, uh, the whatever game master was going to use shrines and whatever else what would you want to play um i would love to see shrines in a couple different systems and each one of these i think would really express like a different version of it like a different way to use it um i think burning wheel obviously on the crunchier end would be would be really interesting um uh the system doesn't really matter at this point, and this is like a sort of an OSR position, I think, that is that like, it doesn't actually really matter. That's why there aren't really rules in the thing. Um, I agree. I, I just I'm want players to sit. Personally. Yeah, yeah. Well, me personally, um, I really want to play some index card RPG. I want to play more Iron Sworn. Um, one thing I am playing right now is a solo journaling game uh, called Blitchdom. Um, I don't know if, if you played oh, that, yeah. but it is oh, yeah. badass. I, my protagonist is such an asshole and I love it. It's like the worst version of me. It's like it's just this evil, shitty exaltation of all my worst character traits. And it's just a phenomenal character. I love it. Uh, and the game, the game drew it out systemically, you know, like it, 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 it created that character from within me, which meant means it did a really great job. Um, <clears throat> I would definitely love to play, you know, any, any number of like lean rules, like stuff right now, like bastards is high on the list um what's in the mail what's even coming um really want to do some 10 candles but that's kind of hard to schedule Ooh, 10 candles mm. is great we've run that a couple of times yeah it's definitely it's a, it's an interesting well, last time we ran we ran it as a uh kind of a um uh fuck what is that french what is that what is that french horror game between two fires style mm. like during the bubonic plague kind of thing as opposed to like the the post-apocalypse kind of yeah. survivor bit super fun great game yeah it's um, a great game and it's also very flexible with its world building like it's mm -hmm. its setting is is up to the table to define yeah no it was it's super great and you know as soon as you say that like it definitely kind of i can feel that as like leaning into kind of like the vibe you're going for with the uh the narrative aspects of play and stuff um shifting back a little bit towards shrines though sure yeah uh, it's first of all the color scheme is fantastic i love i love the red and yellow oh um, thanks but it's it is system agnostic but it's not necessary it's it's very not culturally agnostic like no, there's a, no. a huge part of um i believe it's 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 mostly like himalayan buddhism um yeah. so what besides the fact that you were like took took a trip um what and spent time in a place or or is that the main impetus what is the impetus for choosing that specifically as kind of like the cultural um point for it uh well i would describe myself as what people say as a secular buddhist i am um you know the, the buddhist metaphysics are my are my there i was a philosophy and cognitive science major in college um and i was interested in philosophy of mind questions of consciousness and stuff and uh you can't really answer like ask those questions without looking at older eastern philosophical traditions which have been hammering those points for longer than the west had civilization and so uh, i spent four months in india and nepal on a tibetan and himalayan studies program uh, people on the on that program were mostly focused on the socio-political consequences of the tibetan diaspora um, i was there for buddhism and so i um embedded in some monasteries in Kathmandu, uh, urban monasteries mainly around a very large stupa there, which is a, a reliquary mound in, in Himalayan Buddhist tradition um, called Bodhanath. And there's a bunch of um, uh, actually pretty developed, pretty robust academic monasteries around that, um, that one of which had actually had a Western master's program in, in, in 
Eastern and Buddhist studies that you could go do there. And so there were uh, a number of Western graduate students who were fluent in Tibetan. We learned a little Tibetan on the program, but like not enough to talk about philosophy, obviously. So um, uh, I had some really great translators, you know, and I sat down with like the Dalai Lama's French trans official French translator who had been a nuclear physicist. And so was thoroughly, you know, thoroughly fluent in Western physical theory, which I was trying to, uh, you know, connect uh, and really answer and resolve some questions with particularly the mind body problem, right? So we have this question in, in Western philosophy. It was like, how can an immaterial consciousness interact with a, uh, a material body without like violating the laws of the conservation of energy and so on and so forth. And it's just a natural, uh, it's not that problem is a natural question of like Cartesian dualism and just this general sort of Judeo-Christian idea that we have a soul. Um, and um, I was a, you know, a pretty aggressive empiricist when, when I got there. It was much more like people in the program were a lot more immediately open to mysticism and um, sort of more emotional answers, I think, to some of these questions. And I was like, nope, I'm going to swing the hammer at this as hard as I can. And it's the only, it is the only value system um, and sort of philosophical body of ideas that survived. I, it, my hammer just kept bouncing off. And I was like, this appears to be true. So um, I, uh, you know, that field work that I did there was specifically on the subject of emptiness, uh, which is just the, uh, it's not nihilism. But it's not material realism. It's somewhere in the middle. It's this. There's a school of thought in in, in Buddhist philosophy called the Madhyamaka, and it it calls itself the Middle Way Path, and it is a, a pretty delicate idea. Uh, and I'm not going to do it here, but it's like uh, I'm not going to unpack it all here. I, but I saw, but I but I published on that in a in an undergraduate philosophy journal when I came back home, and I have just generally been a a a Buddhist thinker ever since. And so the ideas of, of interconnectivity, interdependence uh, permeate all my work. Uh, I'm not really interested in um, in uh, more Western value uh, value sets that pit us against each other or particularly against our environment. Uh, I, I think that uh, climate change and environmentalism in general is like the or problem, you know? And it's like, um, it's easy to say as like, um, as 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 one who is relatively spared the pain of, of other socioeconomic problems, um, sociocultural, racial problems, and was a white dude, you know, so like I don't feel uh, day by day um, other problems, but I, I do think that the the umbrella problem that our civilization faces is an ecological one, and so I think Buddhism is is a philosophical tradition that is. Uh, inherently ecological like ecology as a practice is about the is about systems systems of interconnectivity um between organisms in an environment and so um i'm way off topic but oh, um, no but there's no no you're, you're doing great point in the show like I'm you're generally, I'm just listening on tangents. So. go for it yeah, yeah. generally i as a creator have a buddhist value set uh and i'm i'm interested in I remain interested, even as an empiricist, as like a secular empiricist, I'm very interested in the aesthetics of mysticism and the actual methodology of of, of contemplative practice in terms of a means of, of acquiring and experiencing truth. Like we can understand, I wrote a paper about emptiness, but it doesn't mean it doesn't make me enlightened. I don't go around and like perceive the interconnectivity of phenomena around me. That would take meditating in a cave, probably over multiple lifetimes. If you accept reincarnation as a practice, as a, you know, as a part of the process, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so, um, that just means that reincarnation I did. Yes. Cause we don't have time. We do not have time, <laughs> you know? So, so like, this is to say that those values are present in all of my work. Uh, that said, as I, as I mentioned, I'm a white dude. So, uh, I'm, and I'm, and I'm, I'm playing with ideas that are religious in, in nature. There are institutional widely practiced, you know, like cultural practices and, and uh, and conflicts uh, around these ideas. I may be interested in the ideas more specifically, but I'm also interested in the people who practice them and the, uh, you know, I deeply disinterested in, in stomping around like a tourist in, in people's faith. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I like Buddhism because it is not a faith. It is an empirical tradition. It it specifically asks you to not have faith, to suspend, to believe something in the absence of evidence, which is, um, uh, I think, foolish and, and dumb and bad. We should not do that. Um, uh -huh. and, I, I, I would agree with that. Yeah, <laughs> you know. And so, so that said, we have really exciting cultural co consultants on this project. The the uh, most exciting and novel of which is an actual ass Tibetan monastic scholar. Um, he's the founder. Uh, his name is the Kenpo Pema Wangduk. 
Kempo is a is a a formal title in 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 Tibetan Buddhist um, sort of hierarchical structures that, that basically denotes academic and scholarly mastery uh, over all of the, the schools of thought. Um, and so he knows way more, way way more than I've done. Madhyamaka is just one of the several schools that he is required to be fluent in. Um, and you know he's been teaching the Dharma across the world for like forty years. So uh, having him involved as a cultural consultant is so cool because not like the the bare minimum, the absolute bare minimum. The first box we want to check is like, hey, are we not offending anybody? Are we are we not playing fast and loose with actual with real religious uh, concepts? Are we, are we we're not actually depicting any of them? you know, directly, they might inspire something. The mythology might inspire something, uh, but generally it has to be obfuscated in the, in this kind of remixing of fiction. Um, but what's, what's the real value add I hear is that I'm going to let that guy drive a lot of the writing. Um, mm. I'm going to, I'm going to, it's, you know, he knows he hasn't, he has, he's, he, he has a deeper degree of, uh, of like experience with and understanding with the mythology that inspires some of the existing writing right now. So, um, the conversations are, are often just like, Hey, um, where else could this go? Like, what else, what am I not seeing here? What do what, what cool angles do you see here? And it's like, I'll, I'll do the translating into a gameplay mechanic if it's appropriate. Um, but he can open the door to just, you know, influences that I don't have. And so that's, that's really, really exciting. When you reach out to a scholar like that and you're like, Hey, I'm making something for a tabletop for tabletop games. Like, what is that conversation? Like, like what is his opinion about like the medium that you're creating for? He was so stoked. He had no idea what I was talking about, but he loved it. Um, cool. in the beginning, he had just done cultural co consultation, just like this right. in a, in a play on a, on a some, some theater in New York city. Uh, the foundation that he runs is in New York. So, um, you know, he's a pretty worldly guy. He understands, uh, the sort of like, Western cultural discourse around art making. Uh, um, there's another cultural consultant on board, uh, James Mendez Hodes, who has done uh, some much more visible in this space cultural consulting work. Um, uh, and he's even more fluent in the sort of like the online discourse uh, around around the medium. Um, but he's hardly ignorant. He's, he has an Eastern Eastern Classics degree. He's also you know um, you know. A, going to be a great voice in terms of the, the content itself, but approaching the Kenpo, right? So I did this through a third cultural consultant. Uh, his name is Jeremy McMahon. He's a museum educator. He worked at the Guggenheim, he works at the Guggenheim now. He worked at the Rubin Museum in New York, which is specifically dedicated to Himalayan art. And um, he actually, he and I were on that program together in um, uh, in India, Nepal, the Tibetan and Himalayan studies program. So I asked him, uh, he was the first person I reached out to. I was like, who, who do you know in your network that I can um, include in this project? um to really drive it and, and take it somewhere you know to, further than i can um and uh, so he connected me to the kenpo and that like it, it's great it, it's really great he's he's not um the kenpo himself is not um like i said he he's not new to this process uh he's really excited about it and i'm i'm even more excited like I, i'm 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 honored to i'm honored that he's even given us the time I think that is so incredibly cool. Uh, I was also just thinking of like when I explain tabletop games to my coworkers, they like they they're nothing, nothing sticks. So nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, when you're talking to someone who's a scholar of like so much stuff, I can only imagine that their ability to like entertain an idea um right. is like right their, their like brain is already like so, like that susceptible but like much more able than like our you know i don't know kevin who works right next to me is incredibly scholarly and uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah the guy's got a great um, brain no no doubt uh and he is excited about the creativity aspect of things where i'm saying like look we're what we're doing is what we're, we're providing material for people to tell their own stories we're 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 making we're making Buddhist tradition and mythologies available to people to explore uh, in a, in a distant fictionalized, you know, arm's length way, but we're, we're like translating it to this medium in the way that like Eurocentric fantasy has been, you know, it's, it's inseparable from it. It's so endemic to the thing that it's actually just like a core component. Uh, this idea that like you have a knight, you know, who plays fealty, fealty to a Lord and that there is like, you know, one very specific, lord of light deity type thing like yeah. all these tropes derive yeah. pretty Christ. directly from from yeah. western christendom and so yeah I, it's not my job it's not it, it, to be very clear it is it is not my job to bring buddhism to the west to bring it into into gaming in this way i can only make the 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 work that is in my heart 
you know, and that it resonates with me and I can bring on people. I can surround myself with people who can, um, help credential and, and authenticate that effort. Um, uh, so I want to be very clear. I do not, I do not consider myself sort of some sort of like evangelist, um, you know, of these traditions. Yeah, um, we, they are, the, however, you're the new Buddhist Messiah of the West, right? Like that's that would, the, be, the yeah. you're trying to that would be a terrible claim that I would never make. <laughs> um, yeah. It is, however, very critical to who I am as a thinker and as an artist. Uh, and so it would be disingenuous and bad and wrong and just kind of self-defeating for me to exclude this dimension from my own work. Yeah, no, it, I mean, it's, it's also cool to have just much more like, God, stuff that's not Eurocentric race war fantasy. You know what I mean? Like, it's really nice to have <laughs> yeah. like stuff that's, you know, other <laughs> other thought processes. And especially with with not only it, it's not just like, God, we, we could have a 10 hour conversation on all the shitty, like quasi cultural yeah. stuff that D&D has put out for the past 40 years. Right. But yeah. like to actually have not only uh, a creator who has experienced that and has gone over there and had those discussions, but to be able to bring on not one, not two, but like multiple cultural consultants to make sure that not only is it, um, as you said, not offensive to anyone, but like uh, accurate and inspired by, yeah, written by right. to actually, to actually give you not, not, and it's not even just that it's, it's you're reading it and here is the truth. It's that like, you are now going to have these, generative processes to create within that space in a correct way to expand on that style of stories as well. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, I think shrines could, could have been, or might still be more Buddhist than it is. Like it, um, I've been a little, a little, um, sort of negotiating with myself, the degree to which shrines should include that dimension, like how, how Buddhist should it be? Is it like, am I going to go out and be like, that's what this book is. And I've elected to not do that because I don't feel comfortable making that being that guy, you know, make, making that choice. It is right. however, really resonating with people because of that novelty. Um, and so I think given the, the, like the depth of the cultural consulting bench and, and the sort of interest I'm getting in, in response, I might lean into it a little more. I might, I might go a little harder on that dimension. Um, uh, but we'll see. I, I you know, if we don't, I think it'll be it'll be um, something we might do in the future. Particularly if we, if we can find um, an artist, an illustrator from that region. Um, if you're listening, if you're you know, if you are of uh, Tibetan, North Indian, Nepali heritage, or you're really just anywhere from the Buddhist practicing world, um, uh, and you're interested in making tabletop role playing stuff, please hit me up. Um, I can't find you. I'm trying. Uh, you, there aren't that many of you, as far as I can tell. Um, and I'd love to work with you. Well, this this message on this show will really get out to uh, like Switzerland and <laughs> London and some yeah. U.S. and I think hey, Brazil. Yeah. I think we were in Brazil last year. So U.S., uh, U.K., Canada are definitely our top our top listeners. But if you're if you're out there, those but uh, we we've definitely we've definitely got uh, um, at least one person in a lot of places that have listened to at least one episode. Um, <laughs> Well, what's interesting, I mean, it's an interesting line that you're thinking about following, too, because, like, a lot of this project is really based on trusting the people that are supporting it. So um, that that line between, like, how hard do I push into it and how hard do I let people come to those conclusions when I've already added so much right. trust into the process anyway is, is an interesting line to walk, especially as a publisher. I would think that, um, you know, how much do I trust people to just make those assumptions versus how much do I try to make that like a a focal talking point is it, it would be an interesting kind of like thought process to go through. Yeah. I, I don't think we have the answer yet. I, I, I certainly don't think the press, uh, um, you know, has any hard and fast rules about what that is. I will say the name empty mountain, nothing can die is a Madhyamaka sentiment. Um, mountains are a actually universal, uh, cultural symbol for the numinous and the holy. Um, they, uh, emptiness, obviously, um, uh, as the sort of, uh, description of, uh, Buddhist description of how, how, how phenomena exists. It's not saying that nothing exists or emptiness, that emptiness itself exists. It's saying that emptiness is the way in which things exist. There are things, they just don't exist by virtue of an essence. They are empty in, of their inherent nature. They only exist by relationship to other phenomena, which is to say are dependently arisen. And I promise that is the, uh, as much as I, I will go into that, but but the, 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 <laughs> the sort of parenthetical component of the title, nothing can die, um, is um, uh, sort of an implication of that of that idea right where it's like nothing 
exists at all, right? In the way that you would expect it to given what death means. Like birth isn't possible, death isn't possible, existing at all isn't possible. Like there's that phrase in the West, it's like, you know, no one, a man never steps in the same river twice. The Buddhist version is like nobody steps in the same river once. Like there's no river. There's 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 no you in that in that sense. Uh, in in the sense that we mean it, like um, like I I ex I have a soul, right? There is a thing that is me. If you were to make a list of all the things that make me up, eventually you would find you would find that kernel of of substantial being. Um, but that that's, that's specifically that's quite specifically what what the Madhyamaka dismisses. It says there is no such there is no such underlying essence. You will just make a list of other stuff, and each one of those other things subdivides into infinite other things until you just have to stop. <laughs> I so I love the title and and or the the name of the press and like how much actual depth there is to it, but also like it's clearly a, a specific choice to be like just like pretentious <laughs> enough to be cool, you know. Like <laughs> I hope it's cool. Yeah, it's definitely pretentious. Um, I didn't want to just like make another thing, be like such and such games, you know. Yeah. Like yeah. I, no, I mean you know, games omnivorous is not just you know like omnivorous games publishing house or something you know what i mean like right. there's yeah. there's a, a depth to it as well um continuing along with like this kind of publisher line not only so the print process for shrines and i think a lot of your uh kind of thought process behind uh the actual print process manufacturing distribution uh will i assume carry forward uh can you talk a little bit about that because there is a lot of depth to, to that process as well yeah sure i mean it just matters to me a lot how the thing feels in your hands if it didn't, I would not be in analog. I'd, I'd, you know, focus all the time on video games. Um, I'm just, I'm sick of ephemera. Um, I want to hold something, and I want it to. I want the texture to feel good. I want the weight to feel good. That um, artifacty feel of things. Yeah. On bookshelf. Yeah. Yeah. I think. I think I'm really ODing on the internet. Um, <laughs> I was a techno optimist my whole life. You know, I spent. I've spent most of my life in front of screens. I'm in front of one right now. You know, and and. Um, Part of this effort is is to push away from that. And so if you're going to do that, if you're going to embrace the physicality of the object, then I think you, you materials matter. And I think print quality matters. And uh, like, you know, if, if we're taking if we're taking seriously books as art objects, which they are and or can be, um, then I think printing is really important. And uh, research printing is, um, you know, as far as I know, the the highest quality method. Um, you know, it's also far and away the most ecological uh, method. The inks are made of rice bran. Um, the printers themselves don't have a heating component. They don't, they don't use toners, right? They don't like, they don't heat up and in order to apply to adhere the ink to the page, they do some other thing. Um, and it just takes less energy, a lot less energy. Um, and the machines themselves just like kind of don't break. Um, toners break after a while and they just like produce e-waste and show up in a landfill, but it's like literal millions of copies. Uh, can come out of a single single reso printer. So um, I'm not saying that we will reso print everything, but I am saying that we will um, care about the material itself dramatically. The next printing of Sanctum, for instance, will probably be reso printed, just because like you know you know earlier printing is getting your feet wet figuring it out. But it's like um, I'm I want the I'd like the I'd like the pages to have like a grain to them, you know. Mm -hmm. um, anyway. Yeah, I mean, for, uh, razor printing obviously feels fantastic. I, and also, I mean, it looks fantastic. You know, even we talked about it. One of the ones we reviewed recently was like Obachan Panic and like the brightness uh -huh. and like the feel that you can get from like a nice razor print versus, um, you know, just the 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 ink print. It, it is gorgeous, feels gorgeous. It's a little bit more expensive, but it's fantastic. It's a, actually but a it's, lot more expensive. <laughs> just a touch, just a, a bit. Um, it's worth it. I'll spend the money. Um, but um, it, well, because it's not only not only the print process too, but even even the materials you're using to ship as well. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Um, so we as a press, as a publisher, commit to for all time, um, one hundred percent compostable materials uh, for all of our packaging. Uh, I cannot make that guarantee for like an, a retailer who might ship you our products, but if it comes from me, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna go down to the desk where I have all my setup, I'm gonna put it in a uh, a, a mailer, a bubble mailer made of corn. Uh, I bought a bunch of thermal shipping label paper. The actual printing label itself is compostable. Uh, compost or car cardboard already is, so like the little, little structural thing in there is good to go. Um, um, I haven't pulled the trigger on any compostable bubble wrap yet, but I'm probably going to for the Shrine's Fulfillment um, because the books themselves are really nice and I want them to arrive nice. Uh, so 
uh, yeah, I, I just, I, I just can't imagine. I cannot imagine throwing our, I cannot imagine contributing to, and I'll plagiarize myself from the, from the Kickstarter page here, but I cannot imagine contributing to our civilization's trash vortex. I cannot do it. it is, why would I do that? I, I want to make art that is good, um, but not at the expense of like our biosphere. Why would, what a, what a, what a disreputable choice. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those things, especially it's like a small press. Um, it's, it's much, I don't say it's easier. It's the right thing to do all the time. Uh, but okay. it, you know, it's going to make the margin smaller, but it, you have to look at the, the, how you, not just the profit margin, but like your margins of, of everything else. So like ethics, morals, right. and like everything else, the things yeah. that you choose to be as a company, um, in order to go those routes and, and being able to, to choose those things, um, thoughtfully, and, and go in those paths is it's great to do, especially, you know, if, if you're starting like that, being able to have a consistency to that because you'll be able to kind of level that process up versus being like right. putting a million out now and suddenly having to switch. So it's yeah, nice, to, yeah, it's nice sure. to have. Well, thank you. Yeah. I'm, we're definitely gonna have to scale up a little bit. I don't think my printer is going to be able to handle the volume of even the shrines fulfillment. I'll get a new printer for it. Um, so, but I... Yeah. Listen, this project, it sounds absolutely fantastic. I'm, I'm really excited to get it. I know you said you were hoping for a little bit bigger push at the beginning, but as, as a, as a relatively small press and, um, having your first project go on Kickstarter, the fact that you're over $5,000 kind of in like the first week ish is a lot more than a lot of people put out on Kickstarter. Yeah. You got more than three weeks left in the project. Um, so, you know, plenty of room to get to what I'm really excited for is at least, I mean, getting all the way through all the stretch goals where you can actually make a, a contribution to the uh, foundation, pay your artists more and things like that. That's fantastic. But I'm um, getting to the point where there's a little bit of foiling on the front at $10,000 yeah. would be really yeah. exciting. Um, so plenty of time to get to that. So if you're listening, you definitely want to make sure you get over to shrines. We'll make sure, obviously we'll make sure like the link to that, everything is in there. But um, for, for people that are looking for empty mountain, for people that are looking for sanctum for all of that, where can they find you and that now? Well, thank you for asking. Um, the press's website is emptymountain-ncd, for nothing can die, dot com. Emptymountain-ncd.com. Um, I'm hand-fulfilling orders because it's just me. Um, right now, the, the, the only thing we have for sale right now, because it's, you know, again, just me and brand new, is Sanctum. And I will ship it to you uh, from my house. And uh, you can also get, if you if you wanted to pick it up uh, from an established retailer, uh, it's by all means, it is currently being carried by Exalted Funeral, uh, Spear Witch, and Knave of Cups. I believe Knave of Cups put Sanctum in a vending machine. In, in the TPK a, Brewing vending machine? I might make something for that machine. What an idea. Oh, <laughs> it's, do, it. do it. I went there a few weeks ago, and it's fa it's fantastic. So, I'm so happy to hear that. And it's yeah. like, it's, Sanctum is actually a perfect choice for that. Like It's, it it's designed for second bottles of wine. Play it in a bar, please. Sit with your <laughs> sit with your friends and make up dungeons over drinks. I actually kind of want to, I've been thinking about, I've been thinking about a drinking game one, like just like embracing the fact that it's for, it's for drinking. Um, uh, and it's like, we have, we have this idea, right? In, in drinking games. Let me just, humor me for a second. Let's just spitball, let's Go spitball some design yeah. real quick. So like, um, you know, in drinking games, right? It's a penalty to drink which is dumb because we like drinking. Um, right. Theoretically, we're here to drink. Um, if you don't drink, it's fine. But like, you know, you're probably not going to play this game then if you're, if you're not drinking. So if you are drinking, you want to drink and it should not necessarily be a penalty for it. But if it were, the drink should be bad, right? So like, imagine a game, imagine a, a, a game you would play in the booth at a bar where someone buys at the beginning of the, of the game. Everyone has, you know, the round includes... Um, X N plus one drinks where N is the number of players. So there's an extra drink sitting in the middle of the table. And, and if it's bad that no, no one wants it, then drinking is a penalty. But if it's good and everyone wants it, then drinking is like a reward. Um, and that's all I've done so far. So as far as I've gotten in my thinking, but I think there's something there. Well, you I know, think... King's Cup, King's Cup is the thing, and that is your like hodgepodge mix match of everything. So by the time you get to wine, whiskey, and beer, and everything in one, it is a bit of a penalty. So I, I was that. thinking on the flip of like you cannot drink until you do a thing, mm. um, and that way your it's not a penalty at all. Like drinking is just the reward, right? God, we we could have a problem. whole freaking episode just about drinking because sometimes it's the volume is the problem. Right. You know, that's yeah. that's yeah. the penalty. Yeah. But um, anyway, my point, but the, the, I think the, the, the more interesting point to say about this is that games should be aware of where they are played, the context of their play. 
um, and they should make efforts uh, to not be at odds with, to be conducive with those dynamics so that yeah. they, you actually want to play them. Yeah, got to hit that flow state, you know? Got to um, get that flow state. <laughs> but uh yeah and, and also just saying knave of cups fantastic press please go check out we knave, do of love cups. knave of uh, cups yeah they're fantastic so. we've had them on the show before uh they're both uh they're both fantastic um and uh, a, a great press and i know hunter's actually gone and visited the machine so i would if those could pop up everywhere that'd be fantastic but uh but james listen super excited for shrines um if you haven't checked out sanctum definitely go grab that uh, from their website as well, but really appreciate you being on here. Please come on again and let's yeah. have like a note, not a time, uh, a time, um, that we need to end by. So we can just have like a 10 hour conversation on some of the stuff we talked about today. Cause my goodness, you have no idea how much, uh, Hunter and I have struggled not to, to really let this run forever on some of those topics. So real, That's a, great discussion. Really appreciate you being here. Hey, thank you very much for having me. I live for these. These are tons of fun. Yeah. Um, it's a blast. Yeah, this this is great. I'd be happy to come back on. Thank you. Thank you so yeah, much. Absolutely. So listen, uh, in the descriptions below, everyone that's listening or watching, just like always, you can find the links to um, the Empty Mountain website, to the Kickstarter. Please go back that. Um, definitely would love to hit all those goals and would love to get a press that's doing uh, interesting things that uh, that James is trying to do with MD Press um, up and running and and, and more successful because that's definitely the kind of stuff that I I want. The reason we started the show is so <laughs> that we could get more of the things that we want, and this is what we want. So uh, uh, please go support you. that. Yeah, and uh, you know you know all our link link tree uh, at the weekly scroll. So thank you so much for listening, James. Again, thank you so much for being here. Um, and that is going to be us for today. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you, everybody. Bye.